sin is an awful thing. I know I'm stating the obvious, but because we are all naturally sinners, we don't fully see just how awful sin really is. One of the experiences in this life that ought to communicate to us how awful sin is, is death. Every time we see death in this world, every time we hear about death, or walk through the painful experience of losing someone to death. It ought to be a reminder to us of just how heinous sin is. You see, if it weren't for sin, there would be no death. Death ought to be a continual and powerful reminder to us of the awfulness of sin. But the fact of the matter is, we rarely make the connection in our minds. It's almost as if we get used to the heinousness of sin and its consequences or ramifications. Yet death and disease and sickness and deformity ought to be continual reminders to us that sin is an awful thing. There are times in life when walking through certain experiences, we get angry at death or disease, or sickness, or deformity. But as I said, we usually don't make the connection in our minds with sin. Those things, those, those specifics, death, disease, sickness, and deformity, are consequences of sin in our world. So our anger should actually be directed at sin. We ought to hate sin and despise sin and detest sin. But if we are honest, we usually don't. Oh, sometimes we hate sin in others, especially if it affects us adversely. But rarely do we really hate it in ourselves. In fact, it's easy to get used to it in our own lives. It's easy to treat it softly by excusing it or justifying it or rationalizing around its wrongness. Just this week, I had someone trying to convince me that it is possible to justify a married man pursuing a married woman who's not his wife. And you hear that and you think, well, how could anyone who claims to be a Christian, claims to respect the Word of God, really hold to such a view? It illustrates the point of how easy it is for us to justify, rationalize around sin. To say it another way, it's easy to get comfortable with it. Beloved, that should never be. Sin is a heinous thing. And the consequences of it in this sin-cursed world ought to remind us of just how heinous it is. Jesus came into this world to deal with sin. Now I realize that's a very broad statement. And the specifics, the specific aspects of that are many. For one, Jesus came into this world to deal with sin by showing how to live life without sin. Jesus came into this world to deal with sin by explaining what God's Word has to say about resisting sin. 
Jesus came into this world to deal with sin by paying for its penalty. Jesus came into this world to deal with sin by alleviating some of its consequences in his vast healing ministry. By healing so many people so thoroughly and perfectly, Jesus gave a foretaste of what it's going to be like when all the consequences of sin are forever banished. We see a little glimpse of that in our text this morning in Mark chapter 7. So please turn with me in your Bible, if you are not already there, to Mark chapter 7. And as we continue our way through this tremendous gospel record, we come this morning to verses 31 through 37. So please follow along as I read these verses for us. Mark 7, verse 31. Mark tells us, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he, the he, of course, a reference to Jesus, Jesus came through the midst of the region of the Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Before we jump right into our consideration of these verses, let me remind you of something that we covered earlier in this series through Mark's Gospel. As we have already seen many times in the six or seven chapters that we have covered, a major aspect of our Lord's ministry while He was here on the earth was healing. Why did Jesus do so much healing during His earthly ministry? Why did He do so many miracles? He did them for at least three reasons. Compassion, validation, salvation. Compassion, validation, salvation. Number one, Jesus did miracles because of his compassion. He loved people. He hurt to see them hurting. His heart broke when he saw the devastation caused by living in a fallen, sin-cursed world. He was moved with compassion when he saw people suffering the ravages of sickness and disease and death. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He entered into the anguish of other people. As the prophet predicted, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Matthew tells us, and I'll just read it for us, Matthew tells us in chapter 9 of his gospel this aspect of our Lord's ministry. He says this, 
Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were wearied, they were harassed, some translations say. They were weary, harassed, and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Jesus was moved with compassion. He did his miracles. He did his healing because of compassion. Beloved, let's not have an imbalanced view of Jesus and an imbalanced view of ministry by assuming that the only thing that is important is a person's soul. Certainly it is true that the most important issue is a person's eternal destiny. We would all recognize that. And Jesus said the same thing when he said, For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So Jesus emphasized throughout his ministry that the most important issue is a person's eternal destiny. destiny. But listen, he didn't emphasize that with complete disregard for temporal suffering. He ministered to the body and the soul. He did his miracles. He did his healing because of compassion. Secondly, Jesus did his miracles as a validation. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Scripture stated what the Messiah would do. There are many passages in Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament, that predict what the Messiah would do. So Jesus performed his miracles as a validation of his claims. He fulfilled prophecies in Hebrew Scripture that stated what the Messiah would do. His miracles, you could say it this way, his miracles were a part of his credentials. They were a validation. In fact, on one occasion he said, If you don't believe what I'm saying, I'm paraphrasing here, but if you don't believe me, at least believe because of my works. If my my claims sound astounding to you, if they sound, uh, you know, incredible to you, just look at my works. Do my works back up my claims? Absolutely. His miracles were a validation. Thirdly, Jesus performed his miracles for salvation. What I mean is, Jesus performed his miracles to point people to the fact that he was God in human flesh and his power was able to deliver not only from sickness, but from sin. The goal of Jesus' miracles was to point people to their greatest need, which is salvation, forgiveness, eternal life. His miracles were intended to give people evidence that he is the one sent from God to save us from our sins. His very name Jesus means that. Both Joseph and Mary were instructed to name the child Jesus, which at its root means salvation. He came to save us from our sins. That is why the Apostle John recorded several specific miracles in his gospel account. He said this at the end of his gospel in John 20, 30, and 31, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's it. That's why Jesus did his miracles. 
He did them so people would believe He is the Christ, the Son of God. And when people truly come to believe in the Lord Jesus, they find eternal life and salvation and forgiveness in Him. So Jesus did His miracles for at least those three reasons. Compassion, validation, salvation. With that as background, let's consider this powerful story together that Mark records here at the end of the seventh chapter of his gospel record. He tells us in verse 31, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon. Remember, that's where we left off last week. Jesus was in Tyre and Sidon, up in, up in that area of Phoenicia. And he came across, or actually was confronted by, this woman who had a demon-possessed daughter and begged him for deliverance. And she was such an example of humility and faith. Jesus delivered her daughter. So Mark is continuing the story, telling us that after that event, and who knows what else, because there are many things left out of the gospel accounts, but Jesus departed from the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Now let me remind you, Tyre and Sidon were way up north, deep in Gentile territory on the Mediterranean sea coast. From there, Mark tells us, Jesus traveled east, and dropped down into the region on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, known as the Decapolis. The term Decapolis literally means ten cities. Deca in Greek is ten. Polis is city. Decapolis, Decapolis is ten cities. And it referred to the ten Hellenized cities east of the Jordan River. The ten Greek-influenced cities east of the Jordan River. Now, in case you're not familiar with the land of Israel, the geography, etc., let me just state this plainly. Mark, by telling us this, wants us to understand that Jesus took the long way around to get back to Galilee. That's the point. Jesus could have taken a much more direct route. He could have been back to the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee fairly quickly from Tyre and Sidon, but he didn't. He went a long route, a long way around. Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus did this, but he simply mentions that this was the route Jesus took. We saw back in verse 24 that Jesus went into the region of Tyre and Sidon from Galilee to get a break from the constant pressure of his ministry. However, as we saw last week in verses 25 through 30, even there, way up north, in Tyre and Sidon, Jesus could not escape the demands of ministry. So it's possible that Mark's point in this verse is to illustrate that Jesus went even further away from the center of his ministry to get a respite before returning to the pressure of the constant demands in Galilee. And sure enough, before Jesus even got back to home base, his headquarters, Capernaum, he began to be pursued by those in need. Mark mentions just one example from this region. So Jesus is over on the east side now, picture in your mind, over on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, east side of the Jordan, southeast of the Sea of Galilee, and he's in the Decapolis region, and verse 32 says, Then they brought to him one who was deaf, and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. This combination of ailment is not surprising, because if someone can't hear, 
It's just about impossible for him to develop proper speech capabilities. The two go hand in hand. You need to be able to hear clearly to develop clear speech. So this person had both ailments, both problems, both difficulties. Verse 33 says, Jesus took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears and he spat and touched his tongue. The first thing that stands out to me about this incident is that Mark tells us very specifically that Jesus took this man aside. Don't pass over that statement too quickly. Jesus took the man aside. Jesus did not rent a big auditorium and call this man up on stage where everyone could see the show that was about to take place. On the contrary, Jesus took him away from the multitude. Surely you can see the contrast between this and what supposed faith healers do today. They do things to get attention, and the focus is not really on the well-being of the sick person. If that were the case, they would go into the hospitals in the privacy of a room to heal instead of asking sick people to come to their auditoriums. The, The focus is on the supposed faith healer. By contrast, Jesus pulled this man aside. He's not going to make a spectacle of him. He's not going to make a show of him. He's not going to use this to increase his notoriety or his fame. Nothing like that whatsoever in the ministry of our Lord. It's also interesting to note that Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears and he spat and touched his tongue. Why did Jesus do this? Did Jesus need to do this to be able to heal the the man? Obviously not. In fact, in the verses just prior to this, as we saw last week, Jesus healed a young girl or delivered a young girl from demon possession without even going to the place where she was living. Jesus simply told this young girl's mom, go your way, Your, your daughter is delivered. And she went and found it so. So it's obvious that Jesus did not need to stick his fingers in the man's ears or spit on the ground, touch his tongue. Jesus often healed from a distance. Therefore, some have suggested that Jesus was communicating with this man by a form of nonverbal communication. He's coming up to this man, and this man is, is actually brought to him, Mark tells us. They brought him. This man probably doesn't know who Jesus is. What is this man going to do to me? Jesus was basically showing the man that he was going to open his ears and loose his tongue. Verse 34, then looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Ephatha is an Aramaic word that Mark defines for us here in the text. Aramaic was sort of the universal language of the day. Most of Jesus' disciples, Jesus himself, spoke Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, Aramaic more universal. So Mark, writing for a Roman audience, wants them to understand what Jesus said, so he puts it in Aramaic, and he defines it. For those who wouldn't know Aramaic, it means be opened. Isn't it interesting that Jesus sighed? Why did he sigh? Was it because he was tired of helping people? Not very likely. If we want to 
guess, and we can't say specifically because the text doesn't tell us, but if we want to try to figure out why Jesus sighed, then we would have to look at another passage in the Gospels where Jesus responded in a very similar way. And we have another passage like that. It's the occasion in John 11 where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. This passage here is a reminder of the emotion that Jesus felt when he stood beside the tomb of Lazarus. John tells us in his Gospel, chapter 11, that Jesus was, here's the exact quote, was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It was on that occasion, you will remember, that he wept. Jesus was troubled by the effects of sin on mankind. It moved him. It it hurt him. He sighed. He was moved inwardly as he observed and encountered those consequences throughout his ministry. That's probably why he sighed on this occasion. He made the connection in his heart and mind that we rarely make. We see someone sick or we see, see a, 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 to, a, a tomb or a grave or a casket and we think, oh, death, or we think sickness, but we don't think sin caused this. Jesus made the connection that we rarely make. He connected physical suffering in this life with the curse of sin, so he recognized its awfulness and he came to deal with it. He dealt with it ultimately on the cross But he often addressed it temporally as he did on this occasion. When Jesus said, be opened, the man's ears obeyed. Verse 35 tells us immediately, one of Mark's favorite terms, we've seen this so many times already in his gospel, immediately his ears were opened and the impediment, the difficulty, the the bond in his speech and his tongue was loosened and he spoke plainly. Don't miss the fact that this, this is a double miracle. What I mean is, Jesus not only opened this man's ears, but he enabled the man to speak clearly, now catch this, without learning to speak clearly. There was no time needed for him to learn to talk. It was immediate. In verse 36 tells us then he commanded them that they should tell no one but the more he commanded them the more widely they proclaimed it the man's ears obeyed the command of jesus but the people around didn't isn't that a contrast the man's ears obeyed the people didn't obey you know it's very easy for us to minimize this kind of statement or even to see it in a positive light. What I mean is, we we can read a statement like this and say, well, isn't that something? Isn't that tremendous? People were just too excited about Jesus to keep quiet. You can't blame them for being so excited. Beloved, that's the wrong way to perceive this statement. This was disobedience. Jesus said, don't make it known. And he had reasons for that. Don't make it known The people disobeyed, and it had serious ramifications in the life and ministry of Jesus. Let me show you another example that we looked at months ago, all the way back in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel. Go back to the very first chapter. 
And Mark sets the stage for this kind of thing that would repeatedly occur in Jesus' life and ministry by giving us this story in chapter 1, verse 40. Chapter 1, verse 40 says, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And Jesus strictly warned him and set him away at once. Don't don't read that too quickly. This statement shows us that Jesus was very serious about the command he was about to give. He strictly or sternly warned this man. That's important to keep in mind because otherwise it would be easy for us to downplay the seriousness of what Mark is going to tell us in just a moment. Jesus strictly warned this man and sent him away at once. Jesus did not want this man hanging around, and he didn't want him broadcasting the miracle he had experienced. Now, we may not understand why. That may sound strange to us. Why would he not want the man to tell? But Jesus knows what he's doing, and he told this man not to tell. It probably sounds strange to us at first, but the reason comes out as the story unfolds. Verse 44 And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus actually gave this man two commands. One, first, see that you tell no one. Jesus commanded this man not to tell others. Why? Because Jesus knew that if he did, then the result would be that the people, the multitudes, would get all caught up in the miracle and not end up listening to Jesus' message. Jesus knew the tendency of our human hearts. He knew the crowds would get the wrong focus. That was one of the reasons why he left Capernaum in verse 38 earlier in this chapter. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. So Jesus left. Why, what prompted him to leave? Well, back up just a couple verses. Verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Now again, we might read that and say, Oh, that's neat. That's exciting. Everyone's looking for him. In response, what does Jesus say? Let's go. Let's move on. The crowds grew in response to all the healing Jesus had done, and that resulted in Jesus deciding to move on. He knew how easy it would be for the people to become fixed on the wrong thing. That is exactly what happened in John 6 when Jesus walked on the water and fed 5,000. John 6.15 says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Jesus regularly pulled away from the crowds because he didn't want to reinforce their wrong assumptions of what kind of Messiah he was. You see, they wanted someone who would change their circumstances, but he came to change hearts. The primary focus of Jesus' ministry was to change hearts. That's why he didn't. Please hear this. That's why he didn't want all his miracles to be proclaimed throughout the land. 
Remember what I said earlier. Jesus did not perform his miracles to attract a crowd. He performed his miracles out of compassion and as a validation and for salvation. But he knew that the people would easily get focused on the wrong thing. If you doubt that, just look at Christianity in our world today. There is a huge segment of Christianity, maybe the majority, that totally revolves around supposed miracles and healings and supposed casting out of demons and speaking in an unintelligible babble. That is what the Christian life is all about to many people. That's it. They are totally fixated on the wrong thing. Jesus fully knew this tendency of the human heart. So he commanded this man here in Mark 1 not to tell others. But then interestingly, the second command Jesus gave to this man was to go to the priest and offer the gift that was prescribed in Leviticus 14, 4 through 7. Remember, when Jesus was ministering here on the earth, the Old Testament law was still in force. It was still in place. Jesus had not yet fulfilled it completely and instituted the new covenant. That would happen at the end of his life, but at this point, the old covenant was still in force. So Jesus told this man to obey what the law of God said in Leviticus 14 by carrying out the prescribed offering. And then Jesus added the phrase at the end of this verse. He says, as a, at the end of verse 44, as a testimony to them. In other words, Jesus did not want this man to broadcast the news to the population in general. But Jesus did want the religious leaders to know what he had done because that would be a validation of his messianic claims. Jesus was giving them the evidence they needed to believe in him as their Messiah. However, if you know the story of the Gospels, then you know that the religious leaders didn't believe in Jesus. In fact, not only did they refuse to believe in him, they committed the unpardonable sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by saying he was demon-possessed, satanic. They rejected the Lord in spite of all the evidence he gave them, but they weren't able to say that they weren't given ample evidence. Jesus instructed this man to go to the priest. Now, we don't know if he did that or not, but we do know what he did do. Verse 45 tells us, however, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus, watch this, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places. This man, in his excitement, disobeyed Jesus. It's tragically sad. It's a sad way to end the story. It's not the way Hollywood would end the story on a sad note. It would have had a different ending, but this is the way it ended. This man disobeyed Jesus by telling the story far and wide. Not only that, the way this verse reads implies that he didn't even go to the priests as required in the Mosaic law. As I said earlier, it'd be easy for us to minimize this by, by saying something like, well, the guy was just thankful and excited about what Jesus had done for him. Well, that may be true, and that's a good thing, to be excited and thankful. But it was still disobedience. And it was disobedience that had major consequences for Jesus. As a result of this man's disobedience, Mark tells us, Jesus had to move his ministry away from the city and into the desert regions. Now think about what that means. 
This means that for all intents and purposes, the teaching ministry of Jesus in the city came to a halt. It ended. He couldn't preach and teach, which was the most important thing he was doing, because the people were mobbing him as a miracle worker. That's what they wanted from him. Not his message, his miracles. Jesus couldn't do the most important thing of all, which was teaching people how to be right with God, how to have salvation, how to have eternal life, because this healed leper disobeyed him. Now that's serious. Beloved, let this be a reminder to us that when Jesus gives us a command, it is our responsibility to obey it whether we understand the reason or not. This man's disobedience had a significant impact on what Jesus wanted to do in his ministry. And the same thing could be said about the story in chapter 7 in our text. When people disobeyed Jesus and proclaimed his miracles abroad, it not only affected the ministry of Jesus by forcing him to withdraw from those who were merely looking for a miracle worker, there was another consequence. Listen to this one. Sometimes it forced him to move on to avoid premature conflict with the religious leaders of his day who were trying to kill him. If you read the four gospel accounts closely, you will note that it is not uncommon for the writers to say that when the crowds began to grow, Jesus moved on to avoid premature conflict with the religious leaders. He refused to put himself in a position of conflict until the timing was right for him to die. So don't downplay. Don't downplay the seriousness of these statements where we are told that Jesus commanded the people not to tell others about his miracles, but they proclaimed it anyway. Those aren't cute statements about people having uncontained excitement. Yes, they had uncontained excitement, But their refusal to do what Jesus said was serious and significant for our Lord and his ministry. Now back to Mark 7 as we begin to wind down the story in our text there in Mark 7. Mark tells us in verse 36 that Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. Remember now, this event took place over in the Decapolis as Jesus was headed back to the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee where his ministry was set, where, where his headquarters was located. By God's design, he was not to focus on the Gentile region of the Decapolis. Yes, Jesus ministered to Gentiles as the need arose. But his mission was not to have a public ministry among the Gentile people in the Decapolis. So when these people began to widely proclaim what Jesus had done, and all the crowds began to gather around him to sort of, you know, hem him in, it had the potential to detour him away from the Father's plan for him. That illustrates the seriousness of this issue, as I was saying a moment ago. The excitement of the people was commendable. Nothing wrong with the excitement but it should not have been accompanied by disobedience. Verse 37 tells us that they were were astonished beyond measure, saying he, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. 
Their amazement was appropriate. They realized the uniqueness of what they had seen. They, they realized the significance of what they had seen. This man had been deaf and as a result, mute. Yet Jesus was able to miraculously open his ears and also miraculously enable his tongue and his brain to work together to speak clearly. And this happened instantly without the man needing to learn. No speech lessons. Nothing. No wonder they were astonished beyond measure. We should be too if we really grasp what Jesus did on this occasion. And then they added this fantastic, this just phenomenal statement here in verse 37. He has done all things well. What a neat statement. Indeed, He has done all things well. Let me give you just a brief sampling. When Jesus turned water into wine in John 2, do you remember? It was the best wine anyone had ever tasted. When Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law back in chapter 1 of this gospel, she was able to serve the guests immediately. She didn't need to recuperate for a little while. When Jesus healed a paralyzed man back in chapter 2, the man was able to pick up his bed and walk away. When Jesus healed a man with a withered hand back in chapter 3, his hand was completely restored, Mark's wording in the text. When Jesus calmed the raging storm back in chapter 4, Mark says there was a great calm. When Jesus delivered the naked, demon-possessed, wild man in chapter 5, the people observed the man sitting and clothed and in his right mind. When Jesus healed the woman with a flow of blood in chapter 5, immediately, Mark says, the fountain of her blood was dried up. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in chapter 5, Mark says, immediately the girl arose and walked. When Jesus fed the 5,000 with only five biscuits and two fish in chapter 6, they all ate and were filled, says Mark. When Jesus came walking up to the disciples' boat in the midst of a raging storm in chapter 6, he went up into the boat to them, and Mark says the wind ceased. When Jesus told the Syrophoenician woman of verse 29 here in this chapter that her demon-possessed daughter was healed, she returned to her house and found the demon had gone out. And when Jesus healed this man who was deaf, he not only healed him of deafness, but also gave him the ability to speak clearly. Indeed, he has done all things well. Do you know this one personally as your Lord and Savior? He has done all things well. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head in closing in the two or three minutes we have remaining this morning, think about this picture, this portrait that Mark has given us of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only here at the end of chapter 7, but in all of those stories I just mentioned in, in closing. All of these things that Jesus did, and he did them so well, perfectly. There was no, no leftover residual problem that needed attention. He, he did everything well, perfectly, fully, completely. And so again, I ask you, do you know this one personally 
as your Lord and Savior? Remember, he did his miracles out of compassion as a validation, but also for salvation. So as you this morning have seen another one of our Lord's miracles, another one of Jesus' miracles, that the, one of the purposes of that record is to point you to the one who can forgive your sin, who can give you eternal life, who can grant you salvation, a transformation out of darkness and into light. If you don't know him, if there's any doubt in your mind, then I urge you this morning, this very moment, to, in simple childlike faith, call out to the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want you in my life. I want your salvation. I want your forgiveness. You don't have to say it that way. He knows your heart if you're really calling out to him. But call out to him. Because Romans says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on him and be saved this morning. And if you do know him, are you convinced in your heart that he has done all things well? You know, it's possible even as a Christian for a Christian man or woman not to really believe that, to take issue with what the Lord has done or hasn't done. Do you trust him fully, believing he has done all things well? If not, you'll find yourself resisting him, fighting him, battling bitterness, resentment, because you you think the Lord has made mistakes in your life. He's done all things well. Father, thank you for this powerful snapshot of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thank you so much for his example of compassion and his powerful evidence that was set forth to prove his messianic claims and his his giving us this truth so that it would point us to the greatest need in our lives, which is the need of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. So we pray in closing this morning for anyone who is here among us, and in all likelihood in a crowd this size, there are those who do not know Jesus Christ personally as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit use the power of your word to draw that man or woman or young person to faith in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who do know him, I know it's not uncommon for believers, genuine believers, to struggle. What is the Lord doing in my life? Why is he not doing what I I want? And, And to not really be convinced he's done all things well. Convince our hearts that we might rest in that glorious truth. So take the... The, the power of your word and minister it to each and every one of us as you see fit because you know us perfectly. You know how what needs to be addressed in our lives. May you be pleased to use your word in that way for your glory and our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.